Hey guys, and welcome to What Was Her Name? The show where I will uncover the stories of domestic abuse survivors. I'm your host, Maya Hooper. My name is Elisa Wall, and I was born and raised in a polygamist secular community referred to as the FLDS. The FLDS is an offshoot from the mainstream Mormon church, and they do not follow the the mainstream Mormon church's leadership or belief system anymore. I grew up with a very strong testimony and belief in traditional fundamental um, Mormon beliefs. My dad was a convert into this religion, and my mother was a multi-generational child of the church. My mother is a plural wife, and I come from a family of 24 children. I'm the 19th child, so I'm on the tail end of my family's, um, of my siblings. And when I was growing up, I was born in the Salt Lake Valley. And the FLDS had multiple different organizations and um, gatherings of people. They had a community in Canada, they had a community in Salt Lake, and they had a, a large community on the border of Southern Utah and Arizona. And I came from the Salt Lake community. I was raised in the middle of Salt Lake, but we still shut the outside world out. We went to a religious school. We went to religious activities. We didn't socialize or go to the movies or have TV in our house or read books from the outside world or the newspaper. It's, it was a very interesting reality that we were right in the middle of the city, but we didn't belong to the city in any way, shape or form. Within growing up in the FLDS, you know, a lot of people ask, you know, what was your life like growing up inside of the FLDS? And Mm -hmm. We were products of our culturing and training from birth. A woman is taught to become one thing. And that is the wife and the, a wife to a man and a mother of as many children as God would bless her with. So, so much of my life growing up was really cultured around that, what it meant to be a good wife. We had a lot of domestic training and classes on how to be a good wife and what the, the the Lord expected of us as being a good wife. Also on how to parent, you know, they had their own ideals and principles around how a mother should parent. But more than anything, so much of my life growing up as a woman was how to become submissive and obedient to the man. And even though there's a lot of subtleties in the way that that was trained into women, into myself, it was just common knowledge. And not only that is it was modeled so completely from generation to generation to generation. So much of our lives really did revolve around doing the work of the Lord as we were always taught, but more so how to be obedient to the patriarchy, whether that was our father, whether that was our husband, our more so that was the the church and its church leaders. The FLDS believed in this concept of what they called the one man rule. And it was this idea that there was one man on earth who is the conduit to the connection to God and all revelation and all um, spirituality and power that comes from God actually flows through that prophet. That created it to where we were always taught to be loyal to this one man. And at the time of my childhood, that one man happened to be Roland Jeffs. Roland Jeffs had taken over from a prior prophet who had passed away. And in that process, he had taken over a community that had been doing the same work and lifestyle and practice for many generations as well. But as he came in, he started to really kind of change things ever so slowly and subtly. Why that's important is because what really changed my life was when his son, Warren Jeffs, started to take power and control. Now, I grew up in the religious school that Warren himself taught. He was the principal. He was also the curator of all of the curriculum. He decided who taught what classes and how the classes were taught, but more so he himself taught all of the religious courses that we would take. 
you know, we, we took morning classes every single morning that would, we would go deep into the, the religious text of the Book of Mormon. And he would make everyone read a chapter, but then he himself would go into great detail of articulating what it meant to him. So he started very early with spinning all of our um, religious beliefs to his own liking. And we were often tested on these courses and these classes, and it was being drilled into us on every level. You know, the, as a child within my religion, it's often asked, you know, what was it like to live in a polygamous home? What was it like to have multiple wives? And I often am, I'm talking about this from the lens of who I am today. And I'm working to create that bridge of what it felt like to be that, that young girl in it, but also put the reference point for where people are in their day-to-day lives. As a child growing up in the FLDS, it, I couldn't have imagined another way because we weren't exposed to other ways. And so for, for me growing up, I was just doing what I truly believed was the Lord's work. And you can imagine that if you are trained from a, such a tiny tender age, that you are this chosen people of the Lord and that your mission on earth is to be uh, obedient follower of the Lord's will in this life, then you will be granted and given this absolutely incredible afterlife. And so much of the way that we lived was built around this concept of we sacrifice our life today for a beautiful, divine, amazing life after. It was always the redemption after. And so in the the struggle with that particular way is is everything was always swept under the rug. If, If something came up or life struggles happened, or we became emotionally disturbed in any way, whether that was severe anger or frustration or sadness, you know, it was always swept under the rug because your goal was to sacrifice what's happening in this moment and to always have a climate of obedience and um, hungry reverence for what was next, what was the next word of the Lord. But more so we had a term growing up that is, was keep sweet. And this term was really important to the people of our community because it was the blanket that was thrown over everything. If you ever had dispute, if you ever had questions, if you ever had anything of any nature, the term keep sweet meant what's happening for you right now is invalid. And you are to always have a disposition of sweet, pleasant nature, no matter what is going on inside of you or inside of your life why this was such an important term in our, in our world is because this was a term that was brought in by the prophet. So it was considered word of the Lord, but then it became this, this thing that everyone would say all the time. You know, if you were doing something disobedient, then it was, are you keeping sweet? You know, are you doing the Lord's will? Mm -hmm. And it became this very destructive and psychologically, it, it really, shackled people psychologically, as well as it prevented a lot of opportunity for people to, to understand themselves or to understand their environment, because you always had to return to that space of just absolute sweet disposition. We had a lot of struggle and my family particularly lived a unique version of polygamy because there was a lot of unique aspects that created problems in our home. You know, my dad and his first wife had been married for many, many years before they converted and chose to enter into the the practice of polygamy. And my mother had come from multiple generations of polygamous families. And so there was a little bit of a confliction of value systems. And that really showed throughout our, our childhood. It also was the part that often would put my, my dad and my family kind of on the shit list because from the priesthood, or the church is, is we for, we refer to the priesthood as the church in a lot of ways, because it re- references the patriarchy within the church. Um, so often when people talk about priesthood, it's, they're referring to this intangible um, imaginary power that the prophet and the church organization would refer to that went and flowed through men. 
And so often when we were told, you know, are you being obedient to your priesthood head? It meant, are you being obedient to whatever man is in charge of you, whether that's your dad or your husband or the prophet himself? You know, it was this term that was used to refer to the men and the power that men held within our church. My dad was, he really did try. I believe he really tried to live to his own belief system and to do the very best he could to create a family within the church, the way that he loved and living in a world where everyone was either living polygamy or working towards to be in favor, to be living in polygamy. It created a lot of struggles, even for the women, you know, it doesn't matter really how much a woman is cultured and um, brainwashed. I think there's a part of the, the fierce feminine that comes out that really wants to be seen and heard as an equal. And for the women of the FLDS that often came up in a lot of ways, such as jealousy or um, extreme struggle with other women, because they were constantly trying to just find value. And when you come from an environment where your true value is decided by the men in your world, it can become very, very hard. Because for the masculine and for the men of the FLDS, they, you know, they would work and they would go do their world and they would go, go out of the home and come back. And often the time that they were in the home was so short and small. And they had such large families that it made it really hard for the women and the children to find any kind of time to truly feel like they were connected to or bonded with their husband or father. And it really showed in my family. And I, I remember growing up and wondering, you know, would we ever go to heaven because of what was happening inside of our home and the disagreements and the, the struggle that was happening in us trying to live this, this way of life. That struggle that happened within our family, coupled with the reality that my, my dad was quite a valuable asset inside of the FLDS, being an educated man that he was then he brought a lot of those resources into the community as a whole and helped the FLDS to build a lot of infrastructure in their community down in Southern Utah. And that was often seen as a huge threat by the prophet's son, Warren. Also, my dad was asked to be a teacher within the school there, and he was a really, really good teacher. And this I believe it, it really created a lot of struggle for Warren and over the years, as all of these things were happening, you know, my family couldn't quite figure out how to live a peaceful, um, happy version of polygamy, as well as my dad being who he was, he, he cultivated some children who were not afraid to really question. And my older siblings had a long history of kind of questioning Warren and questioning the, the church on some of the things that were happening. And these were anomalies that were not seen as valuable in our community at all. This ultimately came to a head and I really saw the true power of what my religion had over families and myself. When I was about 13 years old, my dad was deemed unworthy and he had his priesthood stripped away from him. And what that meant is, is that he was no longer seen as um, a worthy man in the, the eyes of the church. So he no longer had the power that they got to gift to other men. And he had his, all of us taken away from him. This completely turned my life upside down because I was moved with my mother and my younger siblings down into the Short Creek area, which is a community that was established by the FLDS that sits on the border of Utah and Arizona. This community had been so closed off for its entire um, existence that, you know, it didn't invite the outside world in. It was, it was a very self-sufficient community within itself. And there wasn't businesses that were open to the outside world to come in and, and be a part of. There wasn't, we didn't go outside of the community very much for um, anything other than supplies. So this was a really big shift for me as a 13 year old girl to be in a situation where I had lost my family, 
my dad had been taken away and not just taken away from me, but he now, according to the church and the, what we were being taught and told to, to follow is that he was not even my dad at all. They even believed that they even had this idea that our DNA would change because that's how the priesthood worked is it was what controlled the, the world, the priesthood, the power of the priest that controlled the world, even down to the point of changing someone's DNA. And I'm thrown into this community where even though I had visited it many times in my childhood, I hadn't been in it and lived it. And it was just a cultural shock within my own church. I was moved into the Bishop's home and my mother would later marry the Bishop. And we became a part of, part of this even larger family. You know, Fred had well over 20 wives and many, many, many children. And the unique part about Fred's home is that Fred could not have children of his own because he was infertile. And so all of his children were from broken families, from all of the the families that had had the men removed from the families, then the women were often married to other people. And this was what Fred's family comprised of is all of these women and children who had come from other families that had had their family taken apart and the women redistributed out to the men. And this was quite difficult because you had a lot of children who were working to cope with what had happened in their life. And it, in an environment where nobody had the tools to cope and nobody had the tools to be healthy. And then you had the pressure of the religion. When I was 14 years old, the man who became my father, Fred Jessup, he put his arm around me one day and told me that I was to be married. And inside of the FLDS, the last 20 years had, had been this practice of arranged marriages and the marriages were only arranged through the prophet. At least that's what the people were told. Um, and so for a woman to say, to have a man come into her life, it was always done by the arrangement of the priesthood. I had prepared my whole life for this. And I knew that this was my inevitable path, but there was still a part of me, even as a 14 year old that really wanted more. I wanted to go out and be a teacher. I wanted to go to school. I wanted to, to possibly be a nurse. You know, those were the two options that we had in our community aside from that, but because we had our own clinics and we also had our own schools, they, they were trying to make sure there at least was at least a few people that, that had the expertise to run some of that. And there were, I wanted that for myself and 14 to be told that you have that the, the the, the church has a husband for you was very shocking to me. I was in this home and there was many, many young girls that were older than me. And traditionally you kind of were married in this, this age order. So it came as quite a shock to me. Mm-hmm. And that started a process for myself where I went against the grain of what was normal for women within my community. And I stepped up and said, no, I don't, I don't want to be married. And it over a week, we can have process. I did everything that was within my power to stop this marriage. You know, I went all the way up through the, the power of the church to every person that I could think of that had this connection with God that could ask God if I could be married at a later date, or I could be married to somebody else. All of that really fell on deaf ears. You know, there was this moment in it where I was we days into fasting and praying and, and crying. And, you know, I was in this very painful place with my mother because, you know, she wanted she wanted to listen and understand that I was resistant to it, but also her salvation was on the line as well as my own. And she had been trained her whole life to just help me to be obedient. And and it was a very difficult time, but I found myself sitting at the knee of the prophet. And at this point in his life, he's very old and infirm. Um, And most of us didn't realize it, but at the 
but at that moment, Warren Jeffs, who was the prophet's son, he had fully and completely taken over the power of what was going on. It was just so much behind the scenes that nobody really understood that he was the one controlling everything because of how ill his father really was. But I'm, I'm kneeling at the prophet's knee and I'm sobbing. And for a woman to be able to even have, to be even hold to, for a woman to even be able to hold presence with the prophet is quite a gift. And we saw it as sacred and we, we held a lot of reverence for it. For me to be sitting in his presence was a really big deal, but to be crying and more so begging for relief in not being married was a really big no-no. I begged him to, to ask God if I could be, if I could have two years because I wanted to be 16 instead of 14 and in, in getting married. And more so, I just asked him if he could find someone else for me to marry because I had been told that I would be married to my first cousin. And the man that they were going to marry me to was someone that I had known for most of my life and someone who I vehemently did not like. And there was something about being in, even in his very presence throughout my childhood that was very off-putting to me. It would give me, it would make me feel very uncomfortable. And I did not feel safe in any way, shape or form around this individual. And it was very difficult for me to consider the idea of being married to this man. And when I found out that that's who I was to be married to, it kind of inflamed this, this blind courage inside of me to, to advocate in the very best way that I knew how to for myself. And ultimately the prophet put his hand on mine and he said, follow your heart. And for me, that was this idea that God was telling me that I, that I should follow my heart and my heart. in that time was, I did not want to be married. I wanted more time and I wasn't going to be married to my cousin as they were wanting me to be married to. I got up from that and walked out the door with Warren and ultimately was given the message that, no, you will go through with this marriage. You know, he told me my heart was in the wrong place and that if I wanted to, to be in the community, and if I wanted to have a place in my family and the afterlife that I was going to do this. And there was a part of me that just really broke at that point because I realized that there was no other option. I had no option. And a lot of people ask me, you know, why didn't you just get on a bus and leave? Why didn't you call the cops? Why didn't you, you know, all the things that we have as tools in this day and age, I didn't have those tools Mm -hmm. because of the way that my environment had created our lifestyles. And more so, I was so cultured in my belief system and brainwashed to believe what was told to me about the outside world that I couldn't even comprehend what that would, what that would be. You know, the outside world was, was this horrible, evil place. And, um, I had no idea what would happen to me if I went to the outside world. And so this, this paradox that I found myself in where I was walking into this, this, this hell, I was being pushed into this, this hell of being married, but I was too afraid to go out to the outside world and, and do anything because I didn't know what that hell was like. And so ultimately I found myself being packed up early in the morning. And after my meeting with, with Warren, I went home and my mother and my sister worked so hard throughout the night and they created this beautiful handcrafted wedding dress. And I remember this point in all of it where I'm looking in the mirror and my eyes are swollen and red and I had been crying for a week on end. I hadn't eaten in days because I was fasting and I was praying and just dedicating everything that I had to what I was told was the Lord and believing that he was going to listen and he was going to hear my heart. And I looked in the mirror and I told myself, this is what death feels like. Mm -hmm. Because in that moment, there was a part of me that was dying. Mm -hmm. And 
the next morning I'm packed up into a car with the man I'm to marry and I'm driven across state lines into Nevada in a little dingy motel that was owned by the FLDS. And we're brought into a hotel room that had been converted into a meeting space. There was a few chairs in there. And I sat and listened as Warren began to tell me my duties as a wife and the marriage ceremony began. And I remember in this marriage ceremony, we had this term within the FLDS that was referred to in any kind of a ceremony where it was time and all eternity. And that was a really important term because it meant that whatever was said, whatever was agreed to was not only for here and now, but it was for all eternity. And that was a really big deal. It was committing your soul to something forever. And when Warren came to this place in the vows where he said, you, Elisa, belong to this man for time and all eternity, my heart just sunk. And he started to sob. And I cried and I sobbed and the front of this beautiful dress that my mother had made just started to just become absolutely sopped. And you could hear, I mean, there was, I couldn't hear anything else in the room, but these just full body racking sobs. And it came time for me to, to say, I do. And I couldn't, I just sat there and, and fought with myself. I I couldn't formulate the words inside of me to, to say, I do. And Warren paused and completely started the vows over again. And there was this really awkward silence and I could feel it just almost in a suffocating way, but I I couldn't stop the response that my body was having that that my myself was having. And finally he asked my mother to step up next to me and hold my hand. I remember her stepping forward and just grabbing my hand and squeezing it in this, this intense grip that communicated volumes to me. And I realized in that moment that I was being really, really selfish because not only did my salvation depend on this, my mother's salvation depended on it. My sister's salvation depended on it. My family's reputation depended on it there was so much social pressure and I was under this delusion that my actions and my inability to be obedient was going to negatively affect everyone else in my world. And that was the piece that finally broke my resistance. Mm. And I just said, okay. Mm. And that was, they completed the ceremony I was asked to, to kiss the man and I couldn't even do that. And I just, I fled the room and locked myself in a bathroom and just sobbed. This part of my journey is, is so important to me because the years that would follow would definitely had all layers of different kinds of abuse. You know, there was extreme sexual abuse and mental, physical, and more so emotional and psychological abuse that would happen over the years that I was married to my cousin. Hmm. But this, this day is really important to me because I realized that no matter the adversity that I was under and no matter what part of me I thought had died that day, deep inside of me, there was this little spark. And in that moment, it went to a really, really quiet ember. And for the years that would follow, that ember would stay there. And I'm so grateful that that ember was alive, no matter how dormant I felt it was, because no matter how much brainwashing I experienced, no matter how many times that I was reprimanded for being a bad wife, because the years that would follow, I didn't, I didn't have the ability to be a good wife. You know, there was, there was a lot of abuse that, that was happening that a lot of people just thought was commonplace because they also were experiencing it. And they didn't know that this kind of abuse that was happening and that the trauma that was going on was, was abnormal. Um, And I was the property of this man that I had been given to, and he would, 
treat me as such. You know, he was trained his entire life of what it meant to be a man, what it meant to be a husband and what it meant to be a father. And according to him, he was living those out. But the central piece of that was, is to have an obedient, submissive wife. And the very first time that I ever was exposed to sex, I was so naive. We don't have sex ed in the FLDS. There was, it wasn't in our schools. It wasn't taught by the mothers. It wasn't taught by the fathers. There's this very bizarre idea that I was told that your husband is going to teach you. And so I, I came into that, this marriage as a tender 14 year old, and I'm the property of this man. And I had no idea where babies came from. You know, I assumed that they just happened by God after you were married. I just want to backtrack for a second. I want to like understand, I think, or just be able to kind of like, I think like when it comes to our trauma and when it comes to situations, like whether it be an abusive marriage or relationship and, um, sexual assault, um, I think something that I shared in, in my own story was just like that when I had, um, been married to my ex-husband, I, um, didn't actually feel peace at all. And I remember this one point when everybody left the wedding, um, feeling like I wanted to go home with my friends, like in my family. Like I remember watching them walk away and being like, I just want to go with them. And I didn't know why, but I felt this like immediate doom. And then that night was the first night I experienced abuse. And I think that that's something that I'm curious about with you. I know that just hearing like your um, experience at the altar and you weeping and just like pleading really with someone to rescue you and not having any way out. And ultimately I feel like it was a like self-sacrifice. You like sacrificed yourself um, at the cost of knowing that if you, you know, continue to make a scene that it was not just your salvation, but it was your entire families that was at, at stake. And so you sacrificed yourself. And I think like, I want to know leaving that space, like from that hotel room, like, and then leaving like your family leaving and then you going with your cousin, I think just like what, like that process looked like and like what you were thinking and feeling. And I know you're going to go into that transition of like how it, uh, how you didn't know what sex was, but just like, what did you think was going to happen? Like what, what was in your mind kind of like, this is the expectation of like how this evening is going to go. Yes, definitely. Um, after the ceremony, I was so numb. I, I try to reflect on that day and there's, there's parts of it where I think I went into like an out of body experience because the emotional distress that I was under was so intense. And at that point in time, I had sacrificed myself for what I believed was the greater good. You know, I, I knew that what I did would affect my family, would affect everyone that I loved. And there was an essence of just, oh, I will sacrifice my, my own wants and desires to do what I believe is the Lord's will so that it doesn't affect my family in a negative way. I remember I try to reflect and remember on what it was like to drive back from that hotel room. <clears throat> Excuse me. I look back now and I try to reflect on what that experience was like after I, the ceremony. And there's a lot of it that is, it was like a dream. And so some of it is, is hard to put my fingers on what it felt like and what I was experiencing because I was so completely numb. Mm -hmm. And I had, there's a part of me that had kind of gone out of body because the, the psychological and emotional and physical pressure that I was experiencing was just too much for my child self to, to handle. Right. I remember coming back and everyone was so happy to see us and, you know, they congratulate us in the best way, but what really solidified this deep feeling of, of doom and fear and concern was they had taken my bedroom that I shared in this home 
with my two young sisters and they had removed all of the beds and replaced it with one queen size bed. And they had turned it into this, what they called the honeymoon, honeymoon suite. And that was a point where I snapped out of this numb days that I was under because I had this understanding for the first time that they would actually, I would have to sleep in the same bed with this person. Up to this point, I didn't realize that that's what I would have to do. And it was very off-putting. Like I, I began, began to, to shake and get very concerned about it. And I remember everyone was trying to leave for the night to say goodnight. And I was just hanging on to everyone, keeping them there as long as I possibly could, because I actually didn't know what was going to happen. I was so naive and so unaware of, of how things were meant to be from that point forward and what I was expected and, and how I was supposed to act in all of it, that I just, I wanted any comfort I could, but it was so scary to be in what was that morning, my personal bedroom, a safe place for me to be. And now it had just become this, this very, very unsafe place for me to be. And it was, you know, I look back on that and it's taken me a long time to, to untangle just that little piece of what it felt like to be that, that child, to go from a childhood bedroom to, um, a marriage chamber. And it was a lot of, a lot of struggle and a lot of pain that would take me years to kind of untangle for me, my very first experience of, of sex didn't happen for a little while. Um, and I'm not hundred percent sure as to why, um, the man I was married to didn't immediately, um, act on that, but what would happen over the next few weeks was just this process of trying to get me to engage. And it was consistently this very, I, I would every single time, you know, don't touch me. I don't want to be married to you. And I became quite, I became quite fierce in the way that I would even respond to the man that I was married to. And it became a big problem because from his perspective, he was supposed to have a wife who was submissive. He was supposed to have a wife who was willing to take direction. And I was already quite traumatized and hurt as a 14 year old girl. And I'm being thrown into this environment. You know, it's, it's one of those things where I went one, I woke up one morning and I had a whole friend group of, of people that I loved and I cared about. And by that evening, I lo- I no longer belonged to that friend group. You know, I was in the middle of, of school. You know, I was a student in high school when I got married and in the next day, trying to go to school, I all of a sudden was in my own, I was on my own Island in my social group because I didn't belong to the unmarried girls and I didn't belong to the married women. And I was just on this little island all by my lonesome and struggling to find any reference of of what to connect to and and how to be, how to act, how to, to any of it, because it was, it was such a lonely, difficult place to be because I didn't have, I didn't really have ways to connect with anyone aside from my mother and Mm -hmm. bizarre as it all comes together, bizarre as all, excuse me, as bizarre as all the details are, you know, my, my marriage bedroom was next door to my mom's bedroom. And so to have these weird dynamics happening within the experience of it, it was so very, very hard. The very first time that the abuse really started to begin was I was sitting with this, this man who was my husband and he, he exposed himself to me. And even for me, I hadn't seen any of that. I hadn't even been prepared for what, what it meant, what it looked like. I, you know, we were taught our whole lives to treat men as snakes and for men to treat women as snakes, you know, that's how they would keep us so separate, um, in, in our genders, completely separate. And there was no understanding of the, the male anatomy and, you know, what it was. And it was so very hard for me that I just stood up and I ran and I ran home and I ran into my mother's room and I burrowed down into her, her bed and I couldn't leave. Mm -hmm. And even late into the night when this, this man was, you know, this, this, my cousin was coming to get me out of my mother's room. I couldn't leave my mother's room. And this would begin this, this, this 
this journey of, of how it would go, because there was obviously something inside of me, deep inside of me that felt so very unsafe and everything about my environment and everything about what I was being forced to do was telling me not to listen to that inner voice because I was supposed to, I was supposed to be doing this. This is, this was God's will. This is what I was, this is what I came to this earth to do. Mm. And it created a lot of separation within myself where that, that intuition and that instinct and that inner voice that we all have, uh, it was always this fight with it because I was not supposed to listen to it. I was supposed to be listening to everything else that was going on. Mm. And ultimately the, it came to a point where my husband got so frustrated because I wasn't, I wasn't responding to his advances. I wasn't responding to what he believed a wife should do that one night it finally just, you know, you are going to do your wifely duty and this is what we're supposed to do. And I remember just standing there and every bit of the fight inside of me was gone. And I was just shaking and shivering and begging, you know, please, please don't do this to me. I don't know what you're doing. Please don't do this. And it proceeded to happen. And I was so shocked. And I was in that moment, I was absolutely convinced that this was evil. There was no way that what was happening to me was what was supposed to happen. There was no way that the pain that I was experiencing physically and mentally was, was supposed, was God's will. And I remember after he went to sleep and rolled over, I got out of bed and I went into the bathroom and I just, so I sobbed, I completely lost myself. And I started to contemplate how to get out of it because it, I couldn't do this. Like I, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't know who to ask you about what was going on. And through that process, I realized that I would need to go. I had to go and talk to the priesthood. I had to go talk to the church and tell them that this is what was happening. And it was, this is, this is not supposed to happen. And I ultimately did. I, I went to Warren and I poured my heart out to him. And I said, I, I explained what was going on, what was going on behind closed doors and how it was making me feel. And what was, you know, I didn't feel like this was God's will. I was saying my prayers and I was doing everything that I was told to do. And, and I still, I, I just needed to come and tell him that this was, this was so wrong. What was happening? And he shut me down completely and he reprimanded me so severely and ultimately left me with the message that this is exactly what your husband's supposed to be doing. He is your priesthood head. You are to follow him and be obedient to him as if being led by a hair. And that really what that meant is, is that you're resistant. There was absolutely no resistance in your, um, in your obedience and you complied to whatever was told to you, no matter what, that you could be being led by a single hair and you wouldn't break it. And he told me to go home and submit myself. He told me to go home and submit myself, mind, body, and soul to my husband. And that moment, it, it once it pushed me even further into this disconnection of self. And I, I kind of surrendered to it. And I realized that I had to make it work. I, I had to find a way to, to make it, to make this go where I could be obedient. And I, I, from that moment forward, went through many, many months and a couple of years of just doing everything I could to do what I was told. And the years that would follow were, were so incredibly hard because I couldn't engage in in sex or marital relations in any kind of a way that was pleasant. Every time it, it would happen, I would, you know, I found my own coping mechanisms where I would, I would lie there and I would just squeeze my eyes as tight as I could. And I would just count as, as high as I could possibly count until it was over. And I started to create these coping mechanisms where I would just literally remove myself from my body until it was over. Mm-hmm. And when you have that happen time and time and time again, I started to hate my body. I started to absolutely despise my body because it felt the pain and it felt all of these things that were happening and I couldn't, I couldn't stop them. And then as the years went on and I became, I, I became pregnant 
and I lost that to miscarriage and that would happen once and then it would happen again and it would happen again. And then I became, I became a bad, even worse of a wife because I couldn't mother, I couldn't carry a child. You know, there was something about what was happening that was so about, excuse me, there was something about me that was so wrong that not even God would um, see me as worthy enough to carry a child. And Mm -hmm. it just, it spiraled and it continued to snowball. The, The experience of being in this marriage just snowballed to such a point that I, I finally hit a pivotal place where I I thought there, there can't be a hell that's worse than this. And it started to kind of feed that ember that was deep inside of me. And I started to take steps to protect myself in any possible way that I could. You know, I got multiple jobs. I'm, I'm, I'm 15 and 16 years old and I, I have multiple jobs that was, that was only within my community. So I was only working for people and for businesses that were within the FLDS organization Um, But I was doing that to do everything I could to be out of the home. Mm -hmm. And I would work as late in the day that I possibly could so that when I went home, then maybe I could sneak in and my husband would already be asleep. Or maybe I could, when he came, when I came home, then I could be so good and I could just rub him or whatever I needed to do to just, just make it so where he would just go to, go to sleep. But the reality was, is that there wasn't like that every day. And I finally got to a point where I realized if, if I was going to go home, I needed to be prepared for what that meant. And mm-hmm. so I started to not go home and I would sneak up into my mom, my mom's house and um, up into her room. And I would sneak in there late at night so that nobody could tell me I couldn't be there. And I did everything that I could to, to start to protect myself. But even that was seen as a threat because by being up at my mother's house and not at my husband's house, then that was seen as my mother being meddling. And so the the church at that point said, you, you can't see your mother because she's just meddling in your relationship. And it continued to just spiral into this very unhealthy environment for me to be in. And I started to just really consider, you know, I don't even want to be alive. And I would contemplate suicide always. And and wonder if there were ways that, that God could take me sooner because we didn't believe in suicide. And we were taught that if, if you committed suicide in any way, shape or form, you were immediately damned to the lowest of hells that you could possibly be damned to. And so there was no escape for me because I, I couldn't carry a child and I wasn't a good wife and I wasn't a good daughter and I wasn't a good priesthood girl. And the social pressure that was happening in my environment was so intense because nobody wanted their daughter to be friends with me because I was the example of what not to be. And finally it came to a point for myself where I just removed myself completely. You know, the last time that I ever was, was sexually abused by my cousin, it was, it was violent and it was brutal. And it was everything that when, when people, conceive in their mind of what rape feels, looks and feels like it was so many of those things. And I remember that something inside of me just snapped and woke up like immediately just, just woke up. And I, that fire inside of me started to really blaze. And I looked at him and I said, you will never touch me again. And I left. And from that point forward in my life, I did everything in my power to never allow him to touch me again. And that came at great cost because then I started to be dragged into the priesthood's office, you know, the, the church's office and consistently reprimanded because I wasn't doing these things. But, but ultimately that's what started the shift in my ability, excuse me, <clears throat> ultimately that choice to stand up for myself and say, you will never touch me again. And to have that as like an absolute commitment to myself at all costs. And even for, for me at the time that I made that commitment to, to myself and to my husband, I had no idea how I would actually do that because there was nothing about my environment that had led me to believe that I ever had any tools or any rights to even say that whatsoever. But 
I would, I would look at the years, the year that would follow that and, and see how creative I became, you know, to such a point that I would, I would drive into the, the desert of the area that surrounded the, the FLDS community. And I would find a quiet place and I would park my car and I'd sleep in my car because it was easier for me to sleep in my vehicle than it was for me to even go home. And so I created all of these ways for myself and my life to do whatever I needed to do to protect myself. And at the time there was so much that was changing and shifting, even within our church, you know, the prophet had died. The one prophet had died and Warren Jeffs had completely taken over and had declared himself um, the prophet. And so he was starting to really change the environment of the community. And there was a lot of fear and a lot of pressure that the, the entire people were experiencing because Warren was, was taking everything in a very extreme direction. And so I was going through my own personal hell inside of this, this forced marriage that I was in, but my community as a whole was going through such an intense um, time. And you saw men being kicked out in masses, you know, Warren would stand up in church one day and he would say, um, he would list off this name of 20 plus names. And he would say, these men are, are evil. These men are no longer good priesthood men. And they no longer are a part of this community with no reason as to why, other than, you know, they are, they're leading people astray. What we would find out later is, is that these were men who were questioning Warren or, or questioning the way that things were going because things were changing and shifting so radically and so quickly that there was, there was concern that was happening and Warren was using his ultimate power to weed out and silence any voice or any person that had any um, question as to him and his authority. Right. And so the community was experiencing all of this and I was experiencing all of this. And we started to see this intense pressure of the end of the world is coming. You know, the end is coming. The end is coming. That's what was always being told to us. And so the entire community was constantly on this heightened state of fear. And you watch that happen. You watch that erupt in everyone's life in all kinds of ways. You know, families had a really hard time finding out how to get along, you know, that constant intense pressure to be perfect, to be obedient, to keep sacrificing, to, to keep listening to the teachings, to follow the teachings. It, it just got so intensely bizarre and, and difficult for a lot of people that were there. And for me, it all came to a, a head for the last year that I was still inside of my religion. I was only there because I couldn't leave my mother and sisters because I truly believed that if I left them, I didn't really care about my own life anymore. At this point, I wanted to die. And there was a part of me that would, would fantasize of what it would be like to leave the FLDS and go out into the outside world and be murdered or be, um, you know, have one of the things that I was told would happen to me if I did leave, have that happen. And quite honestly, that was, a, there was a part of me that wanted it to happen because I, I had hit a point where I, I couldn't imagine a heaven that I wanted to go to. I couldn't even imagine a salvation that I really wanted to go to that included my marriage that I was currently in. And over the years, I had gone back to Warren multiple occasions and I had requested a release, which is considered a divorce inside of the FLDS. And every single time the same thing would happen, I would be reprimanded and I would be sent back. Now, there were times that I found myself in Warren or the bishop's office with, with Alan, where he's telling all of my sins and the things that I'm doing wrong. And so I was just constantly being berated by not ever being enough. I was never good enough. I was never enough, no matter what I did or didn't do. And that came to a head at one pivotal day when I was once again brought into the bishop's office and I was in there with Alan and Warren was on the phone because Warren had kind of disappeared from the community at this point. And what all of us didn't know is that he was building another community down in El Dorado, Texas, where he was claiming that to be Zion. And he was 
bringing only the most righteous people down to the secretive compound that he had down there. And so Warren was not really in our community at this point in time because he was doing that. And so the idea of being able to even talk to Warren meant a big deal. It was a really big deal because very few people at this point were actually talking directly to him. But he was on the phone and Alan proceeded to, excuse me, I'm in this, this bishop's office and I've got my cousin who I was married to, the bishop himself and Warren Jeffs on the phone. And my husband proceeds to tell them of all my sins once again, and more so that I had started a relationship with another man and that I was, I was, um, hanging out with apostates or Gentiles because I I was, I had started to create a community of people who were no longer a part of the FLDS and we were starting to connect and I was bonding with them, but more than anything, I was being accused of adultery because in the FLDS, then if you are fraternizing with another man in any way, shape or form, you are an adulterous woman. And for, for me, to be in this room, I wasn't surprised because I wasn't, I wasn't, um, arguing anything they were telling me, um, that I was doing. I was just kind of quietly sitting there. And finally, Warren turned to the Bishop and in the conversation, and he said, you know, I want you to go ahead and release this marriage. And finally I was being given something that I had been begging for since I had been married to be released from this marriage. And he proceeded to explain to me that I was, I was a single angel at this point, And that my only salvation truly was this practice of what they called blood atonement. And it was this idea that at some point in your life, you will be expected to give your own life in a ceremonial setting where you will give that your life and your blood by um, excuse me, that you would give your life and your blood as repentance for this, this cardinal sin. And, you know, that didn't really even phase me that much because at this point in time, I'm so numb and I'm so, I'm so completely done with everything. You know, I'm 17 years old. And when you really conceive that I'm only 17 years old and I'd been married for three and a half years at this point. And, um, <clears throat> What really solidified it all for me was Warren referred to my cousin and he said, a job well done. And there was something that snapped. And, you know, they, you hear people refer to this idea of you see red, your world, something snaps in you and you, you see red. And I just became this, this violent storm inside of me just erupted. And I I can imagine it was all kinds of emotion because I had been suppressing that emotion for my entire life. And I couldn't put a handle on whether it was anger or fear or frustration or panic, what it was. It was this most intense fire that just flooded all the way through my body. And I just started to to cry and violently shake because I thought in my mind, how, how can this be God's will? How can God look at Alan, my cousin, who I was married to and say a job well done. And it it pushed me over the edge and it, it actually was what gave me the fire and the fuel to take those next steps for myself, where I would ultimately stand up for myself emotionally and physically and spiritually. And I, I left that night. I packed up a few of my belongings and I left in the middle of the night and, and fled my community and started a whole new journey of adapting into the outside world and trying to figure out who I was as a person, as a woman. But meanwhile, I have volumes of dogma and brainwashing and belief system that had been enforced into me as a child and throughout my whole life and volumes of trauma that I just never really dealt with or, or wanted to consider, you know, I, I left and I, I became pregnant and had my son. And it wasn't until I had my first 
born child after I had left the FLDS that I looked at his face and I had this intense feeling that I would do absolutely anything for this, this, this human, anything. And I just started to cry because I, I couldn't imagine how my mother had allowed what had happened to, to happen to me, but also so many terrible things to happen to her own children. Mm-hmm. And that moment is when it hit me that she had no choice. Mm-hmm. 